Would you stand with me, friends, as we read the Lord's Word? This morning we're reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Again, let us listen to the Lord's Word. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of, the, of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is the Lord's word. Please be seated, friends. And again, let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for this day and for this time, for this word. We ask now that your blessing be upon this word as it's opened. Bless this servant and bless these, your people, giving us, Father, both utterance and ears to hear that Christ be magnified. We do ask it in his name. Amen. Today we are looking at verses 11 and 12 in this passage. Next week we will finish up uh, through verse 15. We are still dealing with the overall topic of how a person is made fit for heaven. That is, how they are made really and truly holy and a corresponding happiness, not as the world defines happiness. There's a great Switchfoot song called Happy is a Yuppie Word. And uh, it's really true. We have redefined in our culture what it means to be happy. So happiness is, by the world standard, a life devoid of problems, a life wherein everything goes along in the manner that I like. But here, here we are learning about a true happiness that comes from knowing whose I am and that I am blessed now uh, and, and knowing the Lord Jesus this blessing is not only now, but this blessing, as we have read and sung about, this blessing is to come in greater fullness in the days to come. So, as our brother John Burberry has at the bottom of his email, if you've ever seen that, he goes, for some people, this life is as close to heaven as they'll ever get, and for others, it is uh, as close to hell as it'll ever be. And for us, this is the closest, for the Christian, this is the closest to hell that we will ever experience. Right? And why is that? Because we belong to Jesus Christ. Because we are his. Here, the churches of the Lycus Valley, uh, the, the church in Colossae, Laodicea, and Aeropolis, are all under the threat of false teachers. They were propagating demonic doctrines, which, to be sure, would have sounded good in the ears of people. Right? No heresy ever comes uh, like a like an ice pick to the head, they always come in, in very tickling, very soothing, very, oh, you know, you can do these sorts of things. Here, these doctrines were coming. But they were doctrines which, if believed, would ultimately lead to the death 
for the adherent as it would lead the individual to place a confidence in his own flesh, that is, in his abilities to appease God, rather than having them have a confidence in Christ Jesus the Lord and him alone as the sole reason of salvation. Though we don't know, and I, and I say these things by way of reminder, though we don't know the exact nature of the false teaching that was taking place, we do know enough to say that either by insinuation or by outright teaching, these teachers taught that these believers were not yet good enough as they were being in Christ alone. So you could hear them say things or insinuate things like this. You must do better. Well, you must do more. Their emphasis being upon the saints' performance and not upon the work of Jesus Christ and his performance on behalf of the sinner. Here, the apostle has instructed them by command, positively saying, to walk in him, that is, to walk in Jesus Christ, that is, to keep to the truth of Christ Jesus the Lord as they had received it. The truth they had received concerning him, hold to it. Don't be deluded by persuasive arguments, friends. You don't need anything more than Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful to me to, to, hear, to sit in Sunday school and to hear the lessons that are being taught and to see how perfectly, it's, it's really quite encouraging when you think about it because he's saying things that are perfectly in line with what the Apostle Paul here is saying in the book of Colossians. You don't need anything more in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. If you were to die today and you were to stand before the Lord and all you could say, I'm only saved by the grace of God, by your grace imputed to me through Christ Jesus, do you know what he would say? Welcome home. He's enough. Jesus Christ is enough. He gave this also this negative command saying this, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. My friends, the world, the religions of the world all think that it is what we do. It is about what we can do or must do that wins favor with God. My efforts, my involvement, my sacrifice, my noble deeds outweighing my failures, me being better than another person, these are the things that make me acceptable to God. That's the world. But as the Proverbs state, and we pointed this out last week, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Some may think, and maybe in this place, though I hope not, some may think that what I'm saying sounds strange to you, that this gospel I'm preaching is not the common understanding of salvation out in the world. And you would be right, because I'm not giving you the gospel according to man or according to man's logic. I give you, as the apostle has here, I give you the gospel of God. I give you the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that this is what is at stake? This is what the Apostle Paul, there are these two conflicting messages that are taking place, and these churches are being exposed to this. Either you perform for God, or you look to God to perform for you. Which will it be? And what will you place your confidence? This, 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 this can boil down. It's just that simple. You boil it all down. 
that's what we're talking about. In whom are you going to place your trust? In whom will you place your confidence? Don't be carried off as some slave led away from the truth concerning Christ. If you are, you see, you will regret it for all eternity. It is not the tradition of men or the philosophy of these men which makes you fit for heaven, but Christ. He is all you need, as he is enough. For in him, Paul writes, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him we have been made complete, contrary again to the false teachings that were threatening these lovely people. But what does it mean to be complete? It means to fill, to diffuse throughout one's soul. That's the word in Greek. One commentator said this, that is, in Christ you have reached the source whence flows the stream of blessings that supplies whatever you need for this life and for the next. What does it mean to be complete? You have reached the source whence the flows whence flows the stream of blessings that supplies whatever you need for this life and for the next. The question comes to us, but how can this be? I mean, is Paul just making stuff up? Is he just creating this thing? Just trust me, I'm an apostle. I know what I'm talking about. You should just accept what I'm saying. Now, the world, they would hear this, and I've had this people say this to me. That's too easy. What you're saying is just too easy. It's not demanding enough. You should be telling people, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You should be telling people that they should be circumcised. I've never told anyone that, by the way. Um, nor, nor would I, right? You should suffer a little bit. You must do this or that. You must stay away from this kind of drink. You must not smoke cigarettes. You must not dance. You shouldn't listen to heavy metal. You shouldn't listen to guitar riffs and things with strong beats, you know. That comes from Africa with its demonic influences. And I've heard people say these things. They've said them to me sometimes. And we say these things, and I go, wait a second. Remember in the videos we're watching, why didn't Calvin and Luther like what Thomas Aquinas was saying? Because he had made the church, Aquinas had made the church, given it some kind of authority. They didn't stay in their lane, in other words, and they had made a holy day. The church had made a holy day, and therefore you should recognize it. And what was the gripe of Calvin and Luther against that? You have made a condition now upon which we determine what is righteousness. That's the problem. That's the problem. When the church starts weighing in on things, we have no business weighing in on. When we start making rules for people, good Christians, fill in the blank, good Christians do. You see? Something come to your mind? Growing up, it was... I didn't hold an opinion unless my father gave me one, right? Good Christians do exactly as my dad tells them. <laughs> That's how we define what a good Christian is. And, and, you know, I have my things and you have your things. We all have these things by which we're going to determine what makes for a happy Christian, a good Christian, a, sal a saved Christian, and yet we're going beyond the scriptures. Ooh. Again, how can I be? How can I be uh, complete? 
If I'm not doing these things according to the world's philosophy or the traditions of men, how can I and how am I made fit for heaven? There is an actual answer here in the text given to us. Now listen, friends, I'm not doing anything. And, and I, I, know, I know that I'm getting the gospel right. I know I am. Because in my heart, when I sit there and ponder these things, and I pray this, and you've heard me pray it today for you, that if you understand it, you know what the result should be? You come up for air. And you go, whew, what a savior. That's what the gospel does. It sets us free. And yet we all labor under this, either being beat up by ourselves, by others uh, in the world, or by Satan himself. I am like a child. I am like a child. And uh, as a child, I really, I was, I was carefree. My parents said, get in the car, boys. And I'd go, okay. And like puppies tripping over each other, we would climb into the back seat, usually putting a big muddy footprint on the middle seat, which my older siblings despise. We'd hop in the back of that car, and my father would drive us. And I hadn't a care in the world. I didn't know. I couldn't even see forward, so I didn't know where we were going. And I just went where my father told me to go. The picture being, I hadn't a concern in the world, and I knew that my father would get me exactly where he wanted me to be. And that's the way it is for a Christian. I haven't a care in the world. I know the Lord holds me. And I know that he will bring me safely home. My friends, this is what Paul is is getting at. You have been made complete. And don't let anyone take you captive with some other philosophy or tradition of men. How can you know that you are complete? He now explains how you can know this. He says in verse 11, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. In Christ Jesus, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Circumcision. There's a word we don't toss around very often, at least in in broader circles and in culture. Why bring up the doctrine of circumcision? Is he not speaking primarily to Gentiles? Does it not seem a little irrelevant to be bringing this up to these saints? It is believed by some, I personally believe it is, uh, it is believed that this topic comes up because the false teachers were teaching, in part, that in order to triumph over the indulgence of the flesh and to attain to the full measure of salvation, you need literally to be circumcised. And so among the other things, and he gives this whole gamut of things which we'll be getting into in the weeks to come, but Sabbaths and, and do not handle, do not taste, and, and regulations and all of these things that you must be doing. Uh, you, you must be doing these things. Circumcision would have been one of those things. We see Paul talks about these things. It's a problem in the church. Acts 15 deals with this very subject. Galatians deals with this very subject. Here you have these Jews who have conflated and brought together pagan elements and Jewish elements, and they're saying, you must be circumcised. Some of you are going, what in the world are you even talking about? I have no idea what circumcision even is. Um, Very plainly, circumcision was the cutting away 
of the male foreskin and it was something that was a practice instituted by God himself with Abraham and all who were in his household and it was to be given to little Jewish boys on the eighth day of life and upon those men who became or would become new converts to Judaism. It was the sign of the covenant in Israel. It was a picture that the individual was in a covenant relationship with God. I want you to think at this point of a wedding ring. When you see a wedding ring, what comes to your mind? You say, ah, Charlie is married to somebody. Kay is married to somebody. Phil is married to somebody. Andrea is married to somebody. You say that person belongs to another person. Circumcision would have meant this type of thing. That person belongs to the God of Israel. He is a descendant like Abraham, a man of or woman, a man of faith in the God of, of Abraham. One commentator said circumcision had signified cutting away sin, undergoing a change of heart, and being included in the household of faith. It was an outward sign which was to represent an inward reality, an outward sign that represented an inward reality. Look, friends, I can take off the wedding ring, and I'm still married. Right? My heart is with this woman in the second row, closest to the end. <laughs> right? It, but the, the ring, it's a sign, but I'm still married even if I don't, have the ring vice versa you can wear the ring and still have a heart that's very unfaithful right and so the sign is a sign the sign is not reality rather than stubborn and rebelliousness uh, the Israelites were to be humble and obedient to the Lord Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 we are told moreover the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Again, one commentator said, what God really desired was not the external sign for its own sake, but the circumcision of the heart and inward purification. But these false teachers presumably have made at least the sign a necessary requirement to be right with God. And, and I, I looked into this some, and uh, I'm only holding back um, a little bit from you, but there's, there seems to be some, uh, some great interest here. Ezekiel 44, 7 and 9. Listen to this. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void, this in addition to all your abominations. And then verse 9, he says, Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. Um, there's, a, there's a certain sect of uh, Kabbalah that is called the um, Merkava, or the chariot Kabbalah, which is based on the book of Ezekiel. And it's ancient. And I, I wonder, I have questioned whether or not this is actually a form of what 
the Apostle Paul is dealing with because based on the book of Ezekiel, here these people were creating false traditions and, and testimony and, and, oh, you must do this. And it was based upon these things. And you read here in the book of, of Ezekiel these things about foreigners coming into the temple and, and being welcomed into the, the people of God who were yet uncircumcised. And so you have these people saying, you must be circumcised. You, you can't. You can't be a part of the body of Christ. You can't have any hope of happiness. You can't enter into heaven and not be circumcised. You must have your foreskins removed as a sign that you belong to the Lord, that you're cut off from sin, and that you're truly holy. And what does the apostle state? He says, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Oh yes, you must be circumcised, but not the kind of circumcision they're talking about. Not a circumcision that's made with hands on the eighth day or by a priest cutting off some part of your body. You must be circumcised, and you are indeed. You are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And I want you to notice, friends, as he says this, he says, in him. Notice he writes, and in him, in Christ we have been made complete. In him, we have been circumcised. The benefits of our completeness, the fullness of our circumcision do not come, cannot be found apart from Jesus Christ. That's important, I think, to notice here. In other words, while some will push and did push circumcision as a necessity for salvation, Paul would say that circumcision or any other sacrament we would draw out here by implication, be it the Lord's Supper or baptism or any other ritual, none of these things will do anything for you apart from Jesus Christ. They're signs. They're only signs. They're not the reality, but the false teachers we're taking the sign and saying it's a reality that you must do these things in order to be truly saved. In him, the benefits you seek, that is being right, being at peace with God, being forgiven of sin and its guilt, free from and no longer under condemnation, these come only from being in a vital, life-giving union or relationship with Jesus Christ. In him, that is, by faith, it is a simple belief. You want peace with God, you believe upon Jesus Christ. And it's done. It's done. That's good, that's good news. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Again, they say you must be ceremonially cut to be righteous. But it's as if Paul says, you have been circumcised, but with a circumcision made not by human hands, but by the Lord. That is, the Christian has had a change of heart. His sin and uncleanness has been done away, and he has been included in the household of faith by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the reality of what has occurred for each of us. When the world, Satan, and the flesh whisper that you are not complete, don't you dare say, I'll do better. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I feel like, ooh, I'm on thin ground. I don't think I'm on thin ground. When you fail, you don't say, I'll do better tomorrow. I'll just try harder. No, what you should say is, thank the Lord for the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards me in Christ Jesus. 
That's how free the gospel is. In college, I had a friend, a casual friend, who uh, over spring break, remember I went to a college where you weren't allowed to wear jeans to class. You had to wear corduroys or khakis or something. We couldn't see movies while we were away on break. We certainly couldn't drink, certainly couldn't be smoking doobies. Um, I say that for the 70s, people in their 70s, so you know what I'm talking about. Smoking weed, you couldn't do these things. And I had a friend who came back from uh, spring break and he said, yeah, I got into some trouble. He was a fellow the Lord had saved out of a drug background. And over the spring break, he had gone and smoked marijuana. He felt so bad about it, he came to the dean of students and confessed that he had smoked marijuana. And he begged and pleaded, please let me, let me do something to work off my guilt. Can I just come over and cut your lawn? And as far as I know, the dean said, oh, okay, yeah, you can come over and do some yard work for me. As a college student, I was scratching my head going, I'm not so sure what I'm thinking about this. As a minister now, almost 56 years old, I'm going, what in the world was that dean thinking? That is so totally not the gospel. It's not. You screwed up, do better next time. Just work harder. Just come over to my house and cut my grass. Expunge that feeling of guilt that you have. You see? You see? That's a little thing. But it's a big message that you, and, and that you have something to contribute to your salvation to expunge your guilt. And friends, that is contrary to the message of the gospel. It's contrary to it. What should have that dean said? And I don't fault him. He was probably in his early 30s and had probably hadn't thought through the issue very well. He should have said, well, it's a good thing. Jesus Christ died for that sin too. Now, let's... Let's set up fences so that you don't go back there because it's dangerous. But you don't need to pay for your sins, my friend, because Jesus Christ has done it. You ever beat yourself up over your failings? For the words that come out of your mouth when you're angry with people? How you lose your temper, how you yell at your kid, how you throw a glass across the dinner table when you're frustrated? kick the dog, slam the door. Need I go on? Do you ever feel guilt, shame for those things? What do you say? I'll just work harder. Or do you say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace, which is so complete and so thorough, that made me complete, that has circumcised me with a circumcision without hands. You see, this is such a fundamental lesson and I'm not telling you go out and sin. That grace may abound. I'm not telling you that. But if there's something, friends, you can add to your salvation, then Jesus isn't enough. That's the danger. This is the reality. How did he do it? He says, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision removed the unclean flesh so we have been circumcised by Christ by the removal of the body 
of the flesh. Paul writes in Romans 6, 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. The effect that Christ has upon the believer is that by his suffering, that is by Jesus' suffering in the flesh on Calvary's cross, he has set us free from sin's dominion. We no longer need obey its demands upon us. Our old self with its lusts and desires are now dead to us. And progressively, that is very slowly, we are being set free. As John writes in 1 John 2, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is what Jesus has done for us. And you progress and it's slow. The death to sin is a very slow, long drawn out thing. And yet its dominion over you has been broken because of what Christ has done. My friends, you don't need to do anything else, nor can you do more to make yourself fit for heaven. By faith in Christ, you have been made complete. You've been made full. You are as righteous now and as holy as you will ever be. When? Pastor, because I'm still wrestling. And you will. But the reality is, is he has declared you righteous because of Christ. And now you are seeing just a simple point of encouragement for you can you say I'm better off today that I'm walking more like Jesus a little bit more than I was say when I first came to know the Lord can I get an amen why because the Lord because the Lord is working these things out. Have any of you ever felt conviction without anyone seeing into your life or reading your thoughts? Have you ever just went, ooh, I shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't have said Have any of you felt that before? Where do you think that comes from? That comes from the Lord who convicts you. And have you ever been disciplined because you went AWOL from the Lord and you said, nah, I'm doing it my way. And then he up and feels like he cracks you over the head but he does it as a loving father right it's not punishment it's called discipline the lord deals with us as sons and daughters you see the lord is faithful you can't add to your holiness if you could christ wasn't enough the question comes and he answers it when when was i circumcised when did it happen verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You were buried with him in baptism, and at that point you were circumcised. For this reason, uh, Reformed scholars look at these verses and see that there's an equation to be made between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. Friends, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You were made complete in him, as righteous as you can ever be, when in faith you were united to him, of which baptism is that picture. Again, don't confuse the sign with the reality. Don't fall prey, as it were, to their nonsense, says Paul. When they say you are not complete, that you are still lacking, I want you to call to mind your own baptism. Have you all been baptized? Call to mind. Well, I was a child, I don't remember. 
No, but you've seen baptism, so you know what it pictures. What is baptism? Listen to our larger catechism. Again, I'm greatly encouraged because it says here what the scriptures teach. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and a seal of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Again, friends, it is an external sign which either does or in time will or should represent the reality of a person united to Christ, washed clean of their sin, made alive in the Spirit, adopted into the family of God, and resurrected like our Savior unto everlasting life. If you turn over with me to Romans chapter 6, listen to me as I read here what the Apostle writes. Beginning in verse 1. What shall we say? Uh, then are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase may it never be how shall we who died to sin still live in it or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father so we too might walk in newness of life For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. It is a sign. Baptism is that sign, sometimes given uh, after a person believes, and sometimes before, as was circumcision in regard to these little Jewish boys. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism now saves you. Now listen to this. Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? It's not the water baptism that saves you, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you remember, as we spoke about last Sunday evening, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and what did the tax collector say? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Make atonement, God, for my sins. And God did this, and he went away being declared righteous. It is not the external sign, friends, that saves you, but it is the union with Christ that the sign pictures. It was Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm almost done. It was Jesus Christ who suffered in your place. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was Jesus Christ who died in our stead. It should have been you. It should have been me. And it was Jesus Christ who was raised triumphant from the grave who conquered all your sin. Not some, not the light ones, 
but the really bad ones you're stuck with. Friends, all of your immoralities, all of your drunkenness, all of your greed, all of your lust, all of the, the unseemly things that make you stay awake at night, that, that make you shake your head as you recall them for the time you smoked pot and you shouldn't have, for the bully you were, for the kid you beat up, for the kid maybe you shot, the pedophilia, for the pornography, for all of the abortions, for the hatred that you have nursed in your hearts, all of them. Jesus Christ, wash them away. That's good news. He has paid all of your debt. He has removed all of your guilt. Not the feelings. Those will go in time as you focus on the Lord. But the actual guilt against a holy God. He has satisfied his anger. And he has clothed you in all of the righteousness that you need to stand before a holy God and be unashamed. There is now no condemnation Again, what does Paul write? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us, who he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I love that line. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. My friends, you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you, uh, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The antidote to the poisonous philosophies, to the doctrines and traditions of men, that are foisted upon us, that Jesus could never possibly be enough. The antidote to this is to look back to your baptism, not to baptism as a work. You see, if we said, well, if you're just baptized, we would be doing nothing different than saying, well, you must be circumcised. It is not the act of baptism, but it is rather what the baptism represents, what Christ has done in our stead. And like the wedding ring, the baptism is the sign that I belong to the Lord and the Lord belongs to me. And in Christ, who died in my place on Calvary's cross, I died. And being united to Jesus Christ as he rose from the dead, I too will rise again from the dead. Why? Because God has wiped away the sin, your sin, so much so that as he rose from the dead, so will you, which is a declaration that you have been forgiven. Your sins are paid in full. So anyone who comes and says, Jesus Christ is not quite enough, you must do these things, you say, my friend, I've been baptized, I am washed in the blood of Christ. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. I stand complete. I stand holy. And I stand forgiven. And I can add nothing to it. And if I could, Jesus isn't enough. And they should be challenged on that very point. They should be point, uh, challenged on that point. Our faith, again, is not 
in the sign of baptism, but rather in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead, showing that death was conquered, the wages of sin have been paid, and again in his being raised, so were you. Final question, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you? Do you believe that he was risen again from the dead, raised from the dead by God the Father? Then, my friends, you stand complete. That's a good reason to rejoice in the Lord, isn't it? To sigh, that cosmic collective sigh. (laughs) We say, hallelujah, what a savior. Would you bow with me and let's pray. We thank you, Lord, again for your word. What a great Savior you are. What a great salvation you have accomplished in our stead, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we weren't the ones who had to suffer on Calvary's cross, but you were the one who was circumcised, who underwent the trial. And so, Father, we thank you that you have accomplished these things in our place. Oh, Father, we pray that all men and women would come to know such a freedom and such a joy as we have in the Lord Jesus, that like little children, we simply rest in your arms and you say, I will deliver you, I will bring you home, and indeed you are. We give you all thanks for this and pray that, Lord, we would live in this grace, that we would rest in this grace and all that you have done. Thank you. I do pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.